This podcast is part of the Christian Geek Central Network at ChristianGeekCentral.com. Episode 367, Jackie Brown's Four Loves, an exploration of the characters and relationships of Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown through C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves. Welcome to the Strangers and Aliens podcast. Strangers. <laughs> to boldly say what needs to be said. Would you be a stranger or an alien? Or would you be a strange alien? The truth is out there. Strangers and aliens. I am your father's best friend's plumber. Captain Kirk. Do you think that there's room in sci-fi for God? The very first thing that God did so wise you are. was that he created something. So we have a creative God. This is Strangers and Aliens Podcast. Hello and welcome to Strangers and Aliens, a podcast about pop culture, science fiction, fantasy, and Christianity. I'm Ben, Ben Avery, one of the three usual hosts of this podcast, but today I'm I'm alone, and uh, this is not a usual episode. This is an unusual episode, because today I'm going to be reading an essay that I wrote for uh, a book called Tarantino and Theology. Now, Tarantino and Theology was a book of essays about Quentin Tarantino and theology. It was edited by Jonathan and Jerry Walls and published in 2015, so that's uh, quite a while ago, but uh, I had a lot of fun writing the essay. I got to write about one of my favorite Quentin Tarantino movies and one of my favorite authors of all time. Now, one of the reasons why I'm doing this is really just to... um, just to get the opportunity to get an episode out in a very busy and unusual time for uh, Steve and Evan and myself. Uh, This is summertime, which is always busy with camps and stuff like that. And of course, it's also been an unusual summer for movies, and we haven't done that many road trips and those kind of episodes. And there's also just been personal things going on in in our various lives that have made it a little difficult this summer to get together. And maybe we'll talk more about those personal things in some later episodes. We, we've just been taking some time and not, first of all, taking some time off, second of all, not having time. And so I've always wanted to do this. I really enjoyed writing this uh, this piece, and I really enjoyed uh, exploring these ideas. And so uh, I've been wanting to do this for a while. I thought this is the time. I've got some time. The house is quiet. It's unusual. I'm alone in the house, and it's the middle of the day. And so I'm going to go ahead and read this essay that I wrote. It's called Jackie Brown's Four Loves, which basically is looking in the movie Jackie Brown and looking in the book Four Loves and kind of looking at the characters and relationships that were in Jackie Brown and uh, but also taking a look at the kinds of love that C.S. Lewis explores in The Four Loves. And so, Steve, this is for you, man. I know The Four Loves is one of your favorite books of all time. Uh, I also know, man, that um, like you had your wife read this book and make sure that she agreed with the stuff that was in it before you guys got married and stuff like that. So, um, so I'm dedicating this episode to you, man. Love you. 
And uh, as we're going through this, Steve, you can decide which which of the four loves I, I mean when I say I love you. I'm also going to use the word love when I say I love this movie. This is my favorite of all of Quentin Tarantino's movies. My introduction to Quentin Tarantino was, of course, through Pulp Fiction, as with with most people. I remember walking out of the theater after seeing Pulp Fiction and just feeling, I don't know, adrenalized and pumped up. And and, and honestly, uh, this is going to sound weird, but I felt cool <laughs> walking out of the theater after seeing Pulp Fiction. I think all of those were things that you were meant to feel. I think all of those are things that the the vibes that this movie was trying the pulp fiction was trying trying to give off from there uh went to reservoir dogs and and have seen almost every every one of quentin tarantino's movies i have not seen uh, just off the top of my head i know i haven't seen once upon a time in hollywood and there's a dichotomy of thought when you're thinking about quentin tarantino or at least when i'm thinking about quentin tarantino through the lens of my faith and that is that his content can be um vulgar, you know, and, and the dialogue can be vulgar, but he's also a gifted, gifted storyteller. And with all gifted, gifted storytellers, there is almost always a kernel of of truth, of, of eternal truth in the storytelling. And that's really what what Strangers and Aliens is is all about, is finding those kernels of truth in in our pop culture. When I got the opportunity to write this, it came about because I had a friend who knew I was doing this podcast and knew I liked to talk about pop culture and faith. And so uh, he contacted his friends and put them in contact with me. He knew his friends were putting together this book. And uh, I felt like this was a great opportunity to do something kind of fun and unique. But the other thing that came out of this was I kind of knew I might have a good chance at getting my essay in because no one else is going to talk about Jackie Brown. I mean, I knew that you know, the more popular movies were going to be taken by other people. And there are some excellent, excellent essays in there about Inglorious Bastards, about um, obviously Pulp Fiction and, and Reservoir Dogs, a lot of talk about um, wrath and judgment and violence and that sort of thing. But I wanted to talk about love. I will also say on Amazon, if you're interested in getting this book, uh, it is free to read with Kindle Unlimited. And so it's free there. And you can also order it on Amazon. So I'll also say here that uh, this essay does have spoilers for the movie Jackie Brown. If you have not seen it, I, I do recommend it. If you like Quentin Tino's style of storytelling uh, and you haven't seen this yet, it's it's one you should go out and, and check out. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I tried to write the essay in such a way that people will kind of understand what is going on without having seen the movie. But obviously, if you have seen it, this this essay is going to resound more with you because of you're aware of what's going on in, in the film. So. Without any further ado, then, here is Jackie Brown's Four Loves, an exploration of the characters and relationships of Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown through C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves by Ben Avery. Introduction Jackie Brown might not seem to fit in Quentin Tarantino's filmography. Coming at a time when many in Hollywood were trying to be Tarantino, if it makes money, copy it, Quentin Tarantino himself seemed to go the opposite direction. Based on Elmore Leonard's rum punch, Jackie Brown is still trademark Tarantino. It tells the story of a flight attendant, Jackie Brown, who is bringing money into the country for gun dealer Ordell Robbie. But when another of Ordell's partners in crime tells the law too much, Jackie is picked up. Now she finds herself caught between the murderous Ordell and the lawmen who want to take him down. But she has a plan. With bail bondsman Max Cherry helping her, she has figured out how to give Ordell to the law take Ordell's money in the process, and walk away to a new life. 
Perhaps Jackie Brown is not as quotable as some of his other movies, but it still retains Tarantino's smooth and artificially realistic dialogue. Lacking the on-screen blood and violence of his previous two films and cutting out violent scenes from the source material altogether, Jackie Brown still creates tension and shock value when violence does occur. And while it does not feature the -the over-the-top cool or quirky characters found in Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs, it is full of strong performances by actors who are clearly enjoying their job and turning in strong, funny, and emotional work. Everything that makes a Tarantino movie great is here. It's just dialed back to bring the story Tarantino wants into focus. I wasn't trying to top Pulp Fiction with Jackie Brown. I wanted to go underneath it and make a more modest character study movie, Tarantino said in a 2003 interview. So, if you were waiting for Pulp Fiction Part 2, you were going to be disappointed. In focusing on the characters and the quiet moments of their stories, Tarantino made a movie that put the people and their relationships ahead of the tension that would normally come from a crime thriller. This focus on characters results in a a two-and-a-half-hour movie with quiet and thoughtful character moments, deliberate and tense action, sudden explosions of violence, and then a return to the quiet character moments. A brilliant and emotional exchange between Samuel L. Jackson's Ordell Robbie and Robert De Niro's Louis Gara near the end of the movie is one such example. They argue. They stop to think. They accuse. They both realize their relationship has changed and there is no turning back. Everyone, Ordell, Louis, and the audience, knows there is now only one way for things to play out. And everyone, Ordell, Louis, and the audience, is waiting for it to happen. It's inevitable, but it is directed and acted and written, much of the power of the scene comes directly from the novel, in a way that it's not the suspense in the plot that holds tension, it's the suspense of what will happen to the characters. These drawn-out, silent moments that force the viewer to attempt entering the heads of the characters to figure out what they are thinking without dialogue as a crutch make the characters more real. And these real characters, these empathetic characters, play off each other as circumstances and choices and consequences cause relationships to change and deepen and fall apart. Looking at these relationships, Jackie Brown becomes a movie that is a more believable romance love story than so many others that Hollywood churns out. But it is also a movie about friendship and other relationships. Another examination of relational themes is found in the pages of Christian apologist C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, a collection of radio talks he gave in the late 1950s, compiled and published as a book in 1960. In The Four Loves, Lewis defines four Greek words that describe different types of love and gives them a practical, relatively modern context, while also commenting on the Christian application of these definitions. The book uses C.S. Lewis's usual blend of wit, everyday practicality, and theological understanding to create definitions that are eloquent and understandable to both the layperson and the scholar. It is also a blend of his different nonfiction works. Like some of his academic works, it is a word study. Like his theological works, it expresses practical and deep spiritual meaning. The Four Loves is the lens that will be used here to dissect and examine the various relationships in Jackie Brown. Affection. Baby love, my baby love, I need you. Oh, how I need you. Baby love by Holland Dulzer Holland, performed by the Supremes. 
The Greek word for Lewis's first love is storgi, which he defines as affection. Lewis goes on to define affection as a warm comfortableness and satisfaction of being together. He explains, quote, almost anyone can become an object of affection, the ugly, the stupid, even the exasperating. It ignores the barriers of age, sex, class, and education. It can exist between a clever young man from the university and an old nurse, though their minds inhabit different worlds. It ignores even the barriers of species. We see it not only between dog and man, but more surprisingly, between dog and cat. Affection almost seems to be the only positive emotion Ordell Robbie can afford to give anyone. Ordell is easily identifiable as the antagonist of the movie, but when he is with people he likes, or people he wants something from, which may be the only reason he likes anyone in the first place, he is likable. We are introduced to his character soon after we follow Jackie Brown during her long tracking shots through the airport to her job. In fact, we spend so much time with him after those opening credits with Jackie that it's almost easy to forget this is her movie, not his. Ordell's first scene presents us with three different relationships. Ordell's blonde-haired surfer girl and live-in girlfriend, or at least she was a girlfriend at one time, Melanie Ralston, played by Bridget Fonda. Louis Gara, Ordell's partner in crime, who has just gotten out of jail, and who Ordell seems to be spending a lot of time trying to impress with his tales of being a black market gun dealer. And Beaumont, known only by one name to Ordell, and he's not even sure if it's the first or last name, but who is also connected to Ordell through crime. Passing through these relationships, we see a wide range of Ordell's reactions. With Lewis, Ordell laughs a bit too loud, showing off his knowledge of guns and exploits in crime, crimes that took place while Lewis was in jail and Ordell was not. When the phone rings, Ordell interacts with Melanie, ordering her to get the phone even though she says they both know it will be for him. But he orders her to do it anyway with scorn in his voice and a threatening scowl on his face. He barks orders at her like she's a dog, and she's afraid to snap back even as she acquiesces. As he tries to keep up the facade while interacting with Lewis, his frustration boils under the surface, but not for long. The third relationship is introduced with a second phone call. Beaumont is calling from jail, asking for Ardell's help, and the anger and frustration from another go-round with Melanie turn quickly to annoyance, and perhaps concern? with Beaumont. Lewis and Ordell's relationship will be explored with another of the loves. The affection, the storgy love, is illustrated the most by Ordell and Melanie, but it actually can be seen in Ordell's relationships with all of Jackie Brown's primary female characters. With Simone and Sharonda, Ordell's affection is evident. He likes them, they amuse him, he likes having them around. Jackie Brown perhaps held a similar place in his life at one time in the past, and so did Melanie. But of all the women not named Jackie Brown, Melanie is the one with the most screen time. She is the one he actually lives with. Their past is vague. She's been around for years, and Lewis knew her from the old days running with Ordell. There was a romance with someone in Japan since then, but for whatever reason, she was back with Ordell. The moment in time in which Jackie Brown opens, Ordell and Melanie are accustomed to each other. They inhabit the same physical space, but relationally could not be further apart from each other. In fact, they really seem to reflect the other side of affection, a darker side that Lewis warns against. The assumption could be made that Ordell and Melanie are unhappy because they do not have affection for one another. C.S. Lewis actually addresses similar situations in The Four Loves, asking, quote, are all the unhappy homes unhappy because affection is absent? End quote. His answer, 
quote, I believe not. It can be present, causing the unhappiness. Nearly all the characteristics of this love are ambivalent. They work for ill as well as for good. By itself, left simply to follow its own bent, it can darken and degrade human life. Unquote. Dark and degrading are two very apt descriptions of Ordell and Melanie's lives. The opening scene is uncomfortable with its long shots of characters who are not speaking but are simply staring at each other or avoiding eye contact. Making it even more uncomfortable is Lewis sitting between the two roommates, bothered by the abusive back and forth but unwilling to address it. Ordell's treatment of Melanie and hers of him is certainly born from their constant presence and familiarity. Melanie could leave, but she is comfortable. Ordell could kick her out. Her name is on the apartment buzzer, but he rules the roost. But she's his. And that is another level of Ordell's relationship with her, and Sharonda, and Simone too, to an extent. They are possessions, or at least objects. Ordell does not treat them like people, but like things, toys, or tools to be passed around and moved from one place to another. He has more interest in guns and money, and the women in his life, including Jackie Brown, are merely means to an end. Melanie's death at Lewis's hands is no more than an inconvenience to Ardell. He does not mourn her. She is merely a lost thing. Or perhaps Melanie is more like a pet, a small, sharp-voiced dog, always underfoot, sometimes annoying, sometimes leaving a mess, but also there and willing when she is needed to fetch something. Meanwhile, Jackie is a mule, transporting money into the country for Odell. There is a loyalty of some sort in play for Odell and these women, but that loyalty lasts only as long as it doesn't have any personal cost. Again, Lewis, in describing the dark underside of affection, gives what could be a description of Ordell. Quote, Selfish or neurotic people can twist anything, even love, into some sort of misery or exploitation. Unquote. Which brings up the other relationship we were introduced to in this first scene, Beaumont. At first, it almost seems there is something genuine between the two of them, but that cannot last long. Beaumont is the character that, unintentionally and off-screen, sets everything in motion when he gets caught with a gun and jailed. Before his bond is posted, he tells the authorities enough to put them on Jackie Brown's, and because of that, Ordell's, trail. This brings out Ordell's true colors, which have been hinted at but not fully revealed. Here is where Ordell uses every tool at his disposal for self-preservation. Money, used to pay Beaumont's bail. The facade of a friendship, given support by the bail and used to help convince Beaumont to do something he would never do otherwise. Climb into a man's trunk. Temptation, finally luring Beaumont into the trunk and his death with the promise of a trip to a chicken and waffle shack. And then the final tool, a gun used to shoot Beaumont in the trunk of the car. In another hypothetical essay about spiritual elements in Quentin Tarantino's movies, it would be easy to compare Ordell to Satan and, in contrast, Max Cherry to Christ. And the comparison is apt. He uses temptation, lies, and intimidation to dominate, subdue, or destroy whatever or whoever has the misfortune to end up in his path. He is, perhaps, one of Tarantino's greatest villains— his scene in Jackie's place, where he turns the lights off over and over, shrouding him and Jackie in darkness, is particularly chilling. His primary characteristic is selfishness. His primary motivation is self-preservation. Everything he does ultimately serves these two ends, and so 
he murders, and he attempts murder. His faux relationship with Beaumont lasts only until it threatens Ordell's freedom. He only stops trying to murder Jackie Brown when his manhood is on the line. But while Ordell casts his shadow over everyone in the movie, this is still Jackie Brown's movie. And not all relationships are so negative and self-serving. Max Cherry and Jackie Brown's relationship, which will be explored a bit later, starts with positive affection. And then there is ATF agent Ray Nicolette, Michael Keaton, one of the genuinely good people Jackie Brown comes in contact with, who wants to help Jackie, although he is more interested in taking down Ordell and upholding the law. His own morality is used against him by Jackie later on, but the two of them have a much more pure relationship. Their relationship works because, as Lewis describes in a positive Storgi-driven relationship, quote, there is common sense and give and take and decency, unquote. Ray actually shows some kindness to Jackie, extending it to her even though he knows she cannot or will not accept it, because he is asking her to help bring down Ordell. But he treats her fairly, even as the two of them are working toward their own goals. Her goal, to stay alive and get away from Ordell. His goal, to bust Ordell. Their goals rely on each other, and this is where the give and take comes from. This affection and goodwill is harmed, though, when Jackie has to lie to him about the money she's taken from Ordell. He knows she's lying, and she knows that he knows, but Ordell is still at large and needs to be taken down, so they still must work together. This common goal is almost enough to make Ray and Jackie friends. Almost. Friendship. I got one more thing I'd like to yell about right now. Hey, brother, there's a better way out. Across 110th Street by Bobby Womack. When either affection or eros is one's theme, one finds a prepared audience— The importance and beauty of both have been stressed and almost exaggerated again and again, but very few modern people think friendship a love of comparable value or even a love at all, C.S. Lewis says in the opening paragraph to the friendship chapter. Lewis spends a lot of time defining friendship and contrasting it with companionship, in that it arises from companionship but also transcends it. In Lewis's definition, friendship comes from shared views or interests or religion or activity, but, quote, few value it because few experience it, unquote. Perhaps the second strongest relationship in Jackie Brown is the friendship shared by Lewis and Ordell. Separated for six or so years, they pick up where they left off before. The bond of their friendship is again warned against by C.S. Lewis. Quote, friendship, I have said, is born at the moment when one man says to another, What? You too? I thought that no one but myself. But the common taste or vision or point of view which is thus discovered need not always be a nice one. From such a moment, art or philosophy or an advance in religion or morals might well take their rise. But why not also torture, cannibalism, or human sacrifice? Unquote. This is Ordell and Lewis. Together they are criminals. They have the same view about murder. After Lewis admits to killing Melanie, Ordell's reply is, If you had to do it, you had to do it, brother. They share drinks. They share laughs. They share a past. They share Melanie. Ordell takes the lead in the relationship, to be sure. He reveals his own murder of Beaumont to Lewis, only to demonstrate his dominance. But it is a friendship that they share. 
until the friendship goes sour. It is not the actual murder of Melanie that breaks down their relationship, but the foundation of that relationship, a relationship based on violence and lies and crime, crumbles when it looks to Ardell like Lewis's story about killing Melanie could be a lie. This is the scene alluded to earlier. It is difficult to watch, as when Ardell and Lewis first drive away in the van, their friendship is stable. Slowly, as Ardell tries to piece everything together, their friendship begins to unravel. It is brilliant filmmaking, letting the audience think with Ordell. Roger Ebert's review of the movie started with a reference to the scene. Quote, I like the moment when the veins pop out on Ordell's forehead. It's a quiet moment in the front seat of a van. He's sitting there next to Lewis. He's just heard that he's lost his retirement fund of $500,000, and he's thinking hard. Quentin Tarantino lets him think, just holds the shot, nothing happening, unquote. But so much happens in that scene, so much of it happening on the faces of the characters, not in the words. Until this point, Lewis was safe with Ordell. Ordell had shown him Beaumont's body, and Lewis accepted that that would be his fate if he ever crossed Ordell. And both Lewis and Ordell were secure in the knowledge that it would never happen. Now, Jackie Brown has hatched a plot that cost Ordell everything. She had his money, and he was confused. Lewis had no good answers, so Ordell asks the obvious question. Did Lewis and Melanie concoct the story that Lewis killed her as a way to make off with half a million dollars? De Niro proves to be a master of his craft here, as Lewis goes from indignation to masculine bluster to helplessness. As soon as the question is out of Ordell's mouth, it cannot go back in. Paraphrasing to keep the clean tag on this podcast. Ah, F you for asking me that, Lewis says. F you, brother. How could you ask me that? The turmoil and fear on his face after that tells us everything. This friendship is over, and so is his life. The scene continues, though. They figure out it is Jackie who has the money, and the tension slowly goes away. We are relieved. Lewis is relieved until Lewis reveals that he saw Max Cherry and didn't think anything of it. Ordell is not the forgiving type, and this is unforgivable. The gunshot we are expecting somehow still manages to come unexpectedly. As C.S. Lewis said, very few people experience friendship, and the same is true in Jackie Brown. Probably the only other example of the principles of friendship comes from someone who starts the movie with no friends. Max Cherry the bail bondsman Ordell visits to get Beaumont, and later Jackie Brown, out of jail. While Ordell seems to know and have connections to many different people, Max Cherry brings almost no one into the narrative, and almost everyone he is in contact with has a professional relationship that goes no further. The closest possible friendship for him is Winston, but even that is only shown in a photograph early on and job-related interactions toward the end. He is alone, and lonely, and Robert Forster plays him with thoughtfulness and melancholy. It is not a sad life, but it does not seem to be fulfilling. His relationship with Jackie Brown, however, does become something close to friendship. It starts as affection, as Max listens to what Jackie has to say and actually cares about her. They have almost nothing in common but conversations about giving up cigarettes, and music, and aging, and Jackie's problems with the law, and Ordell bringing them closer. More than with Agent Ray Nicolette, Jackie is able to trust Max, and Max trusts Jackie enough to get caught up in her scheme to betray Ordell 
and make off with his money. Not only do they trust each other, theirs is the only relationship without deceit. Together they deceive others around them, but never each other. Lewis says, quote, When the two people are of different sexes, the friendship which arises between them will very easily pass, may pass in the first half hour, into erotic love. Unquote. For Max, anyway, that's just about the right running time. But this section is not about Eros. The next section is. Eros. I loved the girl with the golden hair, and the Tennessee stud loves the Tennessee mare. Tennessee Stud by Johnny Cash. Jackie and Max share a kiss. Two kisses, actually, both of them heartfelt and awkward. It happens at the end of the movie, just as Jackie is preparing to leave. She has Ordell's money. The law has Ordell. She is free to go. Jackie has the chance to escape Ordell's shadow, finally. But it means leaving Max behind. The previous two and a half hours have been spent watching these two get to know each other while they work together to help Jackie make this escape. It's not a Hollywood romance, but it is a love story. The love is Eros, a love that is not mere sexual desire. Quote, sexual desire without Eros wants it, the thing in itself. Eros wants the beloved, Lewis says. The thing is a sensory pleasure, that is, an event occurring within one's own body. Unquote. Eros is what causes sexual desire to transcend the selfishness of a physical pleasure. Max Cherry and Jackie Brown's relationship stands in stark contrast to Ardell's relationship with women. There is no trace of Eros in these other relationships, although the physical pleasure of sex is hinted at. Lewis and Melanie, too, share the pleasure of sexuality without any Eros in their relationship. Sex is something to do, a physical relationship removed from whatever affection or possibly friendship they may have shared. On the other side of the coin, Max Cherry, tired and lonely, gets pulled into Jackie's story and finds himself enamored with, quote, the beloved. Unlike Ordell, who seems to keep Melanie around for the sensual pleasure, if not for himself, for his guests, Max is interested in the person of Jackie Brown. He cares what will happen to her. He wants to help her, and he absolutely is attracted to her. This is evident from their first meeting when he goes to pick her up. The scene is played out with the flourish of a Hollywood cliche. He sees her coming down the walkway from the prison to the gate, cut to his reaction shot. There is a physical attraction, and that may be the first thing that interests him about her, but there is also a sense of protectiveness as he learns her story. Not that she needs protecting. She is a capable woman, and while her arrest and Ordell's suspicion just might be the worst thing that could possibly happen to her, she sees the opportunity in it, and she's the one who comes up with the plans. She's the one who steps into the lion's dens on both sides of the law. What makes it a tragic love story is that, like all the other relationships, except the professional relationships of Ray Nicolette and Mark Dargis and Max Cherry and Winston, at the end, it is pulled apart. Max is 56 years old and has a comfortable life. Jackie needs to leave the country. They do not belong in each other's worlds. They each started the film alone, and they end the film alone. Max enters the movie alone in his office. And he exits the film alone in his office. Jackie starts the movie alone with a cross 110th Street playing in the soundtrack. 
as a flight attendant heading to Cabo San Lucas, where she will bring Ordell's money back into the country. She exits the movie alone, listening to across 110th Street on the radio, driving to the airport where she will take Ordell's money out of the country. The end result is tragic, but that sharing of Eros love and their awkward goodbye kiss is the culmination of a relationship that has changed their lives. Max, the lonely recluse who lived to run a business, had something else to live for, for a time. Jackie, who had been used so often, by Ordell at least, found someone who cared without asking for anything in return. But there is one more aspect to Max and Jackie's relationship. Charity. La 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 means I love you. La la means I love you by Tom Bell and William Hart, performed by the Delphonics. Lewis doesn't use the word agape in the book, but it is the Greek label he applies in one of his letters. Charity means love. It is called agape in the New Testament to distinguish it from eros, sexual love, storgi, family affection, and philia, friendship. So there are four kinds of love, but agape is the best because it is the kind God has for us and is good in all circumstances. Unquote. Charity is a dangerous love, but not for its negative sides. Unlike the other loves, there is not much negative to be said about charity but because it is a love that invites pain. To love at all is to be vulnerable, Lewis says. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. End quote. Agape, like Storge, is a love that loves the unlovable and the undeserving. But while Storgi's affection could come merely from familiarity, the charity of agape comes from a purity. It is the ultimate gift, something holy God gives to unholy man. Humans are able to give agape love to other humans, but only as a pale imitation of the love God offers. Divine love is gift love, Lewis writes. Quote, the Father gives all he is and has to the Son. The Son gives himself back to the Father and gives himself to the world, and for the world to the Father, and this gives the world in himself back to the Father too. End quote. God, the inventor of all the loves, gives agape love to humans who, on recognizing this love and what it means, must also recognize their own unworthiness. So, where is agape love in Jackie Brown? Well, it's not there. Not intentionally. But there is a metaphorical interpretation of Max and Jackie's romance that does actually resemble agape. In the hypothetical other essay that could be written, mentioned previously, Ordell Robbie's devilishness is something that could be extracted from his character's actions, motivations, and tactics. He tempts people to their doom. He prowls like a hungry lion, seeking to consume and destroy. Indeed, for Act 3, Ordell lets his own hair down, and it resembles a lion's mane. Max Cherry would be the metaphorical Christ figure, with Jackie caught in between them, belonging to Ordell while Max tries to save her from Ordell's satanic grip. It's not the perfect metaphor, then again, is there such a thing? But the elements are there. 
And it's in taking a metaphorical look at Max Cherry's actions in Jackie Brown that a glimpse of agape love emerges. Max genuinely cares for Jackie, and his first action in the film is to pay the price for her bail to set her free. After that, the illegality of their actions aside, Max does everything he can to help Jackie, putting himself in harm's way and advising her professionally. On Jackie's side of the relationship, she sees only her imperfections. When Max visits Jackie the morning after they meet, she begins asking him about how he feels about getting old, allowing some vulnerability in front of him. And he tells her with a smile, you know, I can't really feel too sorry for you in this department. She pours out her heart about her aging body, her job, her fears, and her value. It's her future, or her lack of it, that scares her more than Ordell. So Max goes above and beyond his job as bail bondsman, appointing himself as her helper and protector, whether she deserves it or not. Her plan involves stealing from a killer and lying to two branches of law enforcement, but Max is selflessly willing to put himself on the line for her. And in the end, she chooses to leave him behind after he sacrificed for her, risked his own life and livelihood for her, and gave her nearly all the spoils, which he could have taken for himself. Granted, he was helping her break the law, which, as mentioned before, contributes to the imperfection of this metaphor for Christ's love. But looking at the events in the Jackie-Max relationship, a tragic element of the Christ-humankind relationship is portrayed. Jackie needs help. Max sacrifices to help her. Jackie chooses to leave him. Jackie knows she owes him so much, but only offers him more of the money he gave back to her. He refuses, only taking the cut he deems rightful and fair under his business standards. He knows she must leave. She asks him to come with her, knowing he will stay. Jackie leaves, not to return, with only the promise of some postcards. In movies, this kind of ending is unusual. In life, this is a tragedy with eternal repercussions. Agape love is not always returned in kind. The sacrifice of Christ and his love is denied by some, mocked by some, and refused by some. Like Jackie, driving away from someone who truly loves her, humans run away from God. Like Max Cherry, watching her go with sadness etched onto his face, Christ allows humanity to exercise its free will. Conclusion the theological writings of an Oxford Don might not be the first place to look when exploring themes in a Tarantino movie, but within the pages of his book, Lewis actually gives us a reason for doing so. He explains why he uses examples from his own pop culture, so to speak, although for him it is the written word and not the silver screen. Quote, I am driven to literary examples because you, the reader, and I do not live in the same neighborhood. If we did, there would unfortunately be no difficulty about replacing them with examples from real life, unquote. And so, too, with using our own pop culture to discuss spiritual ideas and themes. Obviously, Quentin Tarantino did not set out to make a film adaptation of C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves, and while the exploration of these loves is not intentional, it is also not coincidental. Both Lewis and Tarantino are members of the human race, who create works of art for other members of the human race. 
Art reflects life. And there are some things in life that are universally experienced, love being the most universal of themes. Tarantino explores other primal story themes in his movies, but the intimacy of the filmmaking and singular focus on characters and relationships make Jackie Brown a tale that may not be a morality play, but one that certainly has a number of moral ideas in play. Thanks for listening to this a little bit unusual episode of Strangers and Aliens. I hope you had a a fun time listening or hope you got something out of it. Uh, that's why, you know, we, we communicate like this is hopefully we're going to encourage someone to think about something in a, in a new way or in a different way, or just encourage someone to be encouraged. I don't know. But uh, anyway, again, thank you for listening and we will uh, be coming at your ear pods or your earbuds or your headphones or whatever it is that you're listening, car speakers, Whatever it is, we will be coming back soon with some more episodes, and hopefully Evan and Steve will be joining me soon with that. So, until next time, I want to wish you Godspeed. You've been listening to the Strangers and Aliens podcast, hosted by Ben Avery. Evan David. Steve McDonald, and Dr. Jason O'Neill. Our music was composed and mixed by Tim Leffel. We'd love for you to join the conversation by going to our website at strangersandaliens.com where you'll find show notes, articles, reviews, and more. You can also email us directly at podcast at strangersandaliens.com. Or you can join our social media conversations by following us on Twitter where we are at Strange and Alien or liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash strangersandaliens. Or leave us a voicemail by calling the Strangers and Aliens hotline. That number is 1-804-37-ALIEN. And once again, thanks for listening. La 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 la.